Christ, equal, different, and one. And the part that we dealt with last week basically was the equal part. Uh, I'm taking a great deal of the material that I'm presenting to you from uh, Wayne Grudem and a section that he had in a book. The book was called Biblical Foundations for Manhood and Womanhood, and he was the editor of that, and he also wrote various chapters in the book. And the chapter that uh, we're kind of zeroing in on from that book is called The the Key Issues in the Manhood-Womanhood Controversy and the Way Forward. And basically he says there are three key issues the one that we looked at last time, which is that men and women are equal in value and dignity. And we said if you don't start there, you get everything else mixed up. It won't be right unless you have that as a foundational truth because that's the one <clears throat> that uh, God brings up really first uh, in the Scriptures, and it needs to be uh, in first place in terms of how we view these other ones. Uh, so men and women are equal in value and dignity, The second, men and women have different roles in marriage and in the church, but particularly he emphasized marriage, because marriage is, um, the church is like a bigger family, and the principles that go from, uh, that hold in in accordance to the family then carry over partly anyway into the church. The family was around uh, before the church was, as far as an institution that God ordained. So anyway... The second one, then, men and women have different roles in marriage as part of the created order. Number three, the equality and the differences between men and women reflect the equality and differences in the Trinity. And hopefully, well, we're going to try to do number two tonight and maybe start into number three. Um, And then the, the, uh, the last three, the equality and differences between men and women are very good. This is a matter of obedience to the Bible, and this controversy is much bigger than we realize because it touches on all of life. And hopefully we'll get into those um, the next time or the time after. Um, Actually, I intended to do number two and three here this evening, and I realized as I got into it that we wouldn't get it very far into three. So anyway, let me just... I can't take very much time to review what we looked at last time, but I think maybe just to uh, refresh our memories. This area of men and women being of equal value and dignity is uh, so important in terms of rightly understanding the rest of what we look at that if you miss this, the rest is going to be out of balance. And so I just... uh, just by way of reminder. Well, why don't we read the verse here out of Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now that that, uh, command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, that's issued not just to the man. That's issued to male and female. Rule over the fishes of the sea, birds of the air, the sky, and of every living thing that moves on the earth. All that is addressed to men and women, man and and woman, as being made in the image of God. Uh, And then, of course, we'll skip down just to verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, the ramifications of this teaching, the problem that we have is that um, throughout history, this wrong understanding of of 
the position of, of male and female has pretty much permeated the world. And you have things like uh, male dominance or superiority, that type of an attitude that has marred almost every culture throughout uh, most of history. Now, today we have a reaction against that, the feminist movement, and some of what they're reacting against is a valid reaction because there has been so much done uh, that's been wrong. And we went into that in some detail last time, just looking at some of the tragic situations that have come from that wrong attitude of male dominance and superiority. Um, so we won't try to recover that ground. I do want to um, go into this next area then, which has to do with the distinction of roles. You see, it's not enough just to present part of the, of the scriptural position, which it's important because it's a part that's often missed, and that is the equality um, of men and women uh, in terms of their dignity and worth and personhood. Uh, let me just uh, put it this way. The New Testament affirms that though we are created equally in God's image, men and women were created different and they have been assigned different roles within which they are to fulfill their callings in the home and in the church. The distinction of masculine and feminine roles that's not something that man or woman came up with. That was something that was ordained by God as part of the created order. We must affirm both the equality of men and women and their distinctiveness. You're not being biblical if you don't do both, you see. Uh, we must strive to maintain a biblical balance in our understanding of this topic. And this is, this is very hard to do. Um, Satan is pushing in the opposite direction to make it unbalanced. Our culture is certainly gives us an unbalanced picture. And we have all the background that we bring to this, uh, this issue of years of uh, uh, whole history since the fall of abuse of this truth. So it's, it's not easy to maintain a biblical balance in our understanding. Un, an unbalanced emphasis on part of God's truth will result in damaging distortions of uh, this whole relationship between men and women. If you have, if it's, if you have an unbalanced picture here, un, unbalanced view, it's going to do damage and harm. So, I do want to then briefly look at this. Second key issue that Grudem points out, men and women have different roles in marriage as part of the created order. And to do that, I just want to read to you from a statement made by this Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. That's the group that Grudem and Piper and MacArthur and there's a number of well-known Christian leaders that are in this group that have uh, tried to fashion a statement concerning the, the biblical view of manhood and womanhood. And it's, I think it's done some real good because a number of denominations have taken that, the particular statement that they came up with and used it as part of their oh, um, doctrinal statement for their particular group. And so it, I think it helps to help us come to a balanced view of what the Bible presents on this. So let me just um, read you some of the points here. The first one, of course, is the one that we've already hit on. Both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. Now, all these have verses with them. Uh, the distinctions in the masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every human heart. Number three, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall. Now, that's critical, that little part where he says before the fall, because there's a whole group uh, that, that 
take exception to what these what these men are saying, and they're saying they're saying that this distinction of roles according to gender, that's a result of the fall, not something that came before the fall. And we're gonna we're gonna spend some time on that. So Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of sin. Number four, the fall introduced distortions into the relationship between men and women. Now we hit on that a little time a little last time by looking at this verse in chapter three and um, verse sixteen, where it says um, to the woman, God said, In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We said that um, it's very possible that these verses actually are emphasizing a wrong desire, that is a desire to, to usurp authority from the husband, and also a wrong attitude towards rule, and he shall rule over you, he shall dominate um, you. He shall um, use his authority in an abusive way. That's um, very possible that that's what that verse means. So, and we spent some time on that last time, uh, why that is a defendable position from the Bible. But uh, anyway, the fall introduced distortions into the relationship between men and women. In the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity, and the wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. And in the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility, one extreme or the other, and inclines women to resist the limitations on their roles that the scripture presents or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. And the next point then is that the Old Testament as well as the New Testament manifests the equally high value and dignity which God attaches to the roles of both men and women. Both Old and New Testament also affirm the principle of male headship in the family and in the covenant community, and that in the church, in other words. The next point is that redemption in Christ aims at removing the distortions introduced by the curse, and that's a very important one. It doesn't remove the idea of headship and submission, but it removes our redemption in Christ aims at removing the distortions, the abuses that have um, been introduced because of the fall of man. Um, the example of that in the family, husbands should forsake harsh or selfish leadership and grow in love and care for their wives. Wives should resist or should forsake resistance to their husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. And in the church, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessings of salvation. Nevertheless, some governing and teaching roles within the church are restricted to men. And then the last point as far as what I'm going to read from this statement uh, tonight anyway would be, in all of life, Christ is the supreme authority and guide for men and women so that no earthly submission, domestic, religious, or civil, ever implies a mandate to follow a human authority into sin. In other words, there's no authority that uh, exists that we are to obey in, in, in sin, in following into sin. So those are uh, parts, anyway, of um, this statement by this biblical counsel on manhood and womanhood. And what we want to do is zero in then on this topic of headship and submission. Our culture, of course, does not go along with this idea. I'm talking about American culture. And because we're immersed in this culture, sometimes even these words kind of hit us wrong. Uh, authority, 
kind of the attitude that you, we would get uh, from the overall culture would be challenge it. If there's authority, challenge it. Or where there's authority, question it. Or where there's authority, deny it. Uh, that's kind of the undertone uh, of our society. Submission, well, to say the least, our culture does not see submission as dignified and noble. Uh, it's more of a servile or even foolish uh, position to take. But you see, this is not God's view. This is just the view of our culture. And uh, we need, if we're going to have a balanced view of this, we have to have a biblical view, which means we have to have God's view of it. Some would say that the reason there is headship and submission is because of the fall. Now, I've already mentioned that. Uh, there's a whole group called the egalitarian. Uh, sometimes uh, there's some supposed evangelicals within that group uh, that say that the real position is is that these distinctions in terms of gender and role came because of the fall, and therefore we need to do away with those because God doesn't want that for his people. Um, and the idea is that sin caused this situation of of uh, authority and submission and the way to, uh, well, they, that needs to be done away with in Christ. So that's the egalitarian position. But the position that I believe is biblical is that these roles didn't come by way of the fall. Now, the abuses and a lot of what we talked about last time, that's because of the fall, because of sin. But the, the role... Them, the roles themselves, as God set them up, were not abusive, and they were set up uh, as something good and, and honorable and pure and lovely and something that reflects actually the character of God. And we'll see that more in the, in the time to come. Uh, well... I want to sh uh, give you some reasons why I think that this is indeed the biblical position. Six reasons, and again, uh, we're talking here basically things that um, I got from Wayne Grudem, but hopefully he got them from the Bible, and I think, I think he did. Uh, six reasons showing male headship. Now, he actually had more than this, but I, I picked out six here. Six reasons showing male headship before the fall. Okay, that's the important point. This was before the fall. Uh, the order of creation itself. For instance, uh, Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then after that, God formed woman out of man. So the very order of creation. Well, you might say, what's that mean? I mean, why is that important? Well, all I know is it's important. Because Paul uses that in, in a number of places in the New Testament to, to show that the thing of, of male headship or male leadership in the church and in the family is biblical. Let's just look at that and see how Paul uses it. First Timothy chapter 2. Well, let's see. We'll just, we'll just cut right in the middle of this thing. Chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. He's talking about the way things should be done in the church. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 
Now, what's his reason for this? For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So you can say, I don't see why that makes any difference. But the fact is, Paul says it made a difference. And he, he bases at least part of his teaching um, related to submissiveness, uh, entire submissiveness, uh, on the thing that Adam was first created and then Eve. So that's the first point. I just want to go through these quickly and then we can talk about them. Uh, so the second point is, we're talking about uh, reasons showing male headship before the fall. Um, Adam is viewed as the human race's representative. We might say, so what's that mean? Well, here's the amazing thing is, who sinned first? As far as we can tell, Eve sinned first. I mean, she's the one that listened to the serpent and took from the fruit, gave to her husband. So you would think if, if we were going to trace back the root problem for the human race, uh, it would be Eve's sin. But the Bible doesn't do it that way. Uh, Eve sinned first, but God comes to Adam first. Um, forgot to write the reference down. But uh, chapter 3, um, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, um, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden. Well, anyway, he comes to him. He comes to, God comes to the man and said, uh, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you to, to, uh, not to eat? Well, of course, Eve tries to, I mean, Adam tries to pass the problem, but, but, but God comes to Adam, even though, I mean, he, God was not uh, in the dark as far as who ate the fruit first, but he comes to Eve, or to Adam first. So, uh, we see that Adam had a leadership role in representing the human race. And that is, again, carried over into the New Testament over and over in many places. But, uh, for instance, 1 Corinthians 15.22, As in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So, Adam as the human race's representative. The next thing uh, would be the naming of woman. Uh, in in the Bible, n naming is often presented as a as a um, a presentation of of the one in authority naming the one that is not in authority. Uh, it's a, naming, in other words, is a position of authority. Well, uh, after Adam names all the animals, and there was not found anyone suitable for him, God makes a suitable helpmate for Adam, but Adam's the one that names her woman. So that, you know, some of these may not be as strong as others. Um, the naming of the woman, I, I, you know, you can say that's not that big a deal, but it was in the, in the Bible. Giving a name to something is a, a, a position of authority. Uh, the naming of the human race. God assigned the name man, not woman, to the human race. Look at Genesis chapter 5, and verses 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them, and name them man in the day they were created. Why didn't he name them woman? Well, because there was a, a, a special position of, of leadership, of authority there, that God had uh, placed or assigned to man. Uh, number five, and this is kind of similar to the second one, uh, Adam being our representative, 
primary accountability falls upon Adam. After the fall, God spoke to Adam first. And um, God first calls Adam to give an account of what happened. In other words, he, even though Eve was the first one to take of the, the fruit, to listen to Satan to, to take of the, the uh, fruit there, Adam was accountable. And some commentators think, and I, I don't know how you could say if this is right or not, but some commentators actually think that Adam was right there when Satan was uh, tempting Eve. And instead of taking the position he should have as the leader and saying, hold it, that's wrong. First of all, it's wrong. You should be talking to me and not her. In other words, Satan knew what he was doing by coming the way he did because he was already seeking to disrupt the order that God had established by going to Eve first. But the point is, is that Adam was the one who had primary accountability for what happened. And we see that, again, a number of times, uh, well, just emphasized throughout the Bible. Adam as our representative and as the one who was primarily accountable for what took place uh, there in the fall. And then, lastly, you see this in the, the purpose that Eve was created in the first place. Eve was created as a helper for Adam. Uh, Genesis 2.18, these are familiar verses. We hardly need to look them up. But then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So just the very fact that, that the woman was made as a helper or helpmate or help suitable for the man shows distinction in roles. Uh, it has nothing to do with the equality of worth or value, but as far as roles are concerned, the woman was made as a helper for the man. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians Chapter 11. First Corinthians. Chapter 11. And verse 9. Well, we'll start with verse 8. And this is in a, in a difficult section of Scripture related to church order. But he, he's bringing out uh, one point that we want to zero in here on this, and that is, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. So there's the New Testament uh, ex or, or view of the Old Testament that that. Man wasn't created for woman's sake. Woman was created for man's sake. And he's, of course, going back to this idea of her being made as a helper. So uh, I think it's important right here to emphasize, again, this was not an inferior position, and it was not he, the woman was not an inferior helper. helper. It says there in the scriptures that she was a helper corresponding to him. And if there's going to be a real corresponding, uh, she had to be equal. The, in some sense, some of the animals could help man, but they couldn't be the helper that one who was made equal in value and dignity and worth could be like like Eve. Uh, she was different in ways that would exactly complement who Adam was, equal and adequate to him. And if you're not, if they wouldn't have been equal, she wouldn't have been adequate. So we can't lose the equality here, as we're uh, emphasizing this distinction of roles. 
See, our big problem is, is that whenever we think about authority and submission, we think about something to do with inferiority. It just, it, because the culture has conditioned us to think that way, and we've got to eradicate that from our minds because it's not right. Any, any type of uh, authority and submission in terms of the church or the family that God's talking about has nothing to do with inferiority, not anything to do with that. <clears throat> well, uh, those are some of the reasons that Grudem says this position of male headship was there before the fall. Now, the problem came because man turned from God and there was a, a total uh, disintegration, you might say, of what God had created in terms of the harmonious relationship between man and woman and how he created them in their particular roles. The curse brought a distortion of roles, not an introduction, not the introduction of new roles, but a distortion of the roles that God had put there. Um, again, Eve, her, it says her desire would be for her husband, and that is the idea there, I think, is an aggressive desire to rule over, to oppose her husband. Um, we, we looked at the verse there, and we won't take time again this time, but the very parallel passage in Genesis 4-7, if you want to look at it. Uh, and then Adam says he will rule over you, but the idea there is the rule by power. There's a harshness, a selfishness. See, what basically what we're saying is the fall brought in a distortion of the relationship. It brought pain into the relationship. Um, God, you know, God had... Uh, he brought pain into Adam's particular area of responsibility, which has to do with providing and protecting. Uh, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to earn your, your living, basically, he says, till the ground... He brought pain into the particular area of woman's responsibility, which had to do with childbearing. And he brought pain into sin did uh, the, because of the fall. God, God's curse upon uh, the, the whole creation, really, uh, brought pain into their relationship. And you see that right off, you know, Adam's blaming Eve and... You, uh, it's not long before one brother kills another. I mean, it's just, it just comes right away. So the harmony that was supposed to be there, the perfect harmony, was disrupted. And really the entire Bible following Genesis 3 is a story of God's working to overcome the effects of the, the curse that he justly imposed. Working to overcome the effects of the curse. So, the fall brought a distortion of the good roles that God gave in creation. The distortion was that Eve would now rebel against her husband's authority and Adam would uh, misuse his authority to rule forcefully or even harshly over Eve. But, God is working to change that. And this is part of the, the work of Christ, uh, what you might call the restoration of the original uh, image of God in male and female, the relationship there. In the New Testament, we see that salvation in Christ reaffirms the creation order. But there is an undoing of what went wrong at the fall in relationships. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. God reaffirms the roles that he had 
for male and female because those were good and right and proper and actually rooted in God himself. But he is working to undo the wrong that came to those roles by way of the fall. Um, Colossians chapter 3. Verse 18 and 19. And there's a number of verses like this in the New Testament. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's fitting, it's right, it's the way it should be. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. In other words, get back to what the relationship really is supposed to be as I created it before the fall. A position of, of loving service on the part of the leader, the man, and a position of, of humble, willing, intelligent submission on the part of the woman. Um, in other words, God is reestablishing the beauty of the relationship between man and woman that he originally intended before the fall. Now, um, it is, we, we, if we're Christians, we're in the process of God doing that in our lives right now. And it's not easy because uh, all these things take, uh, well, it takes the Holy Spirit and it takes a real um, desire to, to find God's balance in these roles that, that he's given to us as male and female. Uh, we can't take our picture from the world or we'll get it wrong. We've got to take it from God. And uh, it's, a daily, it's a daily thing to ask God to to more and more show us uh, the biblical ideal of this re relationship between male and female. Um, I have a little chart here. Again, this is, this is Grudem. This isn't mine. And some of the words are not exactly biblical, but they get the point across, so I don't think Uh, can everybody see it? It's kind of hard to know how to tilt that thing to get it right. But on the right side there, it see, you see we have a tendency to be either too passive or too aggressive in these roles that God has, has given. And on the clear to the, the right side over there, uh, I think you have basically the position that took place right after the fall. There was this uh, on the part of the husband. There was a tendency to be more of a tyrant. On the part of the wife, a tendency to be more of a usurper, to try to take from his position of authority. Resist leadership. Um, be non-supportive. Now, uh, I have to say that generally uh, because the woman is what the Bible calls a weaker vessel, she doesn't do this through physical power, which is what the tyrant can use that if he needs to. Uh, the woman has other means. They're a little more manipulative, I think. <laughs> But it's still, it's, it's still trying to accomplish the same thing uh, in some way uh, to resist the leadership. Now, at the ty the, you know, when we're talking about the husband being a tyrant, the, the era of aggressiveness, it's being harsh. If you're harsh with your wife, that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, selfish, 
domineering, those type of things, all that. Um, you know, there's different degrees of this, but nevertheless, this is a result of the fall. This is not God's, this is not God's way. And so often we, I mean, we looked at last time some of the sad examples of that type of thing that has caused the feminists to have a real ground, to have something to say against what they view as the position of, of authority because it's a misunderstanding of God's, of God's way and God's purpose and God's role. On the other hand, there's the air of passivity. For the husband, that would be being a wimp. What's that mean? Well, that means you neglect your responsibilities that God has given to you as, as the one in a leadership position. Uh, responsibilities of protection and providing for uh, the, the wife and family. Um, I mean, it can go into a lot of different areas. Basically, if the husband sits in front of the TV and lets his wife do everything in the family, that's wrong. That's not God's position. I mean, you might say, well, I'm not going to be any tyrant. Yeah, you just erred on the other side. And it's it's... It's unbiblical. It's ungodly. On the other hand, then you have the, the uh, woman who would never say anything in opposition to what her husband says. Just whatever he says goes. That's not right. That's not, that's not being a helpmate. That's not being a helper suitable to your husband. Never points out when something's wrong. Never won't even give their opinion, you know, well, uh, should we go for a trip this year as a family? Oh. <laughs> well, where would you like to go? No, I don't care. Go wherever you want to. I mean, you, you had got, when, when we're talking about uh, the biblical ideal, we're talking about intelligent submission. We're not talking about just turning off your brain and saying whatever the guy says goes, that's not it. So, I mean, there's so many areas that these things can be applied in. But the biblical balance, loving, humble leadership, sometimes it's presented as servant leadership. And, of course, the example is Christ. You have Christ and the church. And if you have that as a picture of what marriage is all about, then you, can, then you know that this, this position of leadership or headship is not going to be oppressive. It's not going to be uh, any kind of domineering thing. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Now, uh, If you're girls or single girls, if you're looking for a husband, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for someone who will lead you the way Christ leads the church and love you the way Christ loves the church. So you never get married? <laughs> No, you just you just be pretty selective and ask God to bring you the right guy. Nobody fits the bill perfectly. But there is a difference between a person, a, a man that has an attitude of I want to be Christ-like in the home and towards my wife and a man that just says, I'm just going to be me. So, humble, loving, headship, and joyful, intelligent, I probably should have put there, willing, willing submission. It's not a do this or else type of submission. It's a willing submission because of what God has set up and because what God will do through that attitude. Well... Um, The last thing, and I think maybe this is the most important that we could deal with here, 
uh, is just that all of this teaching about authority and submission has its parallel in the Trinity itself. And this is the, this is the amazing thing. The equality, the differences, and the unity between men and women is reflected in the equality, the differences, and the unity in the Trinity. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is the part we can't go into very much tonight, but I did want to just touch on it, and then we'll deal with it more next time. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. This section here has to do with the head covering and things related to women in the church. And it's a difficult section. But what brought this up is verse 3. And this is the main thing you ought to get out of the whole section. Don't lose the main thing for getting bogged down with this veil part, trying to figure that out. He says this, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman. That's what we've been talking about here. And God is the head of Christ. Now that is incredible. God is the head of Christ. In other words, in the Trinity itself, there is this position of of authority and submission. God the Father is the head of Christ. That shows you right there that there is a way of having authority, an authority structure, leadership, submission, that implies no inferiority. Because right here in the Godhead, you have God the Father being the head of Christ, and yet we know that Christ is God. They're co-equal, co-eternal. There's no inferiority. So there can be submission without inferiority. Now, let me ask you a question to kind of bring this home. When did the idea of headship and submission begin? Did that begin in the 20th century? Did it begin in the New Testament times when Paul was teaching on this? Did it begin back with the patriarchs, the idea of a patriarchal uh, society there? Did it go back to Genesis? When did it begin? Well, you should have already picked up on my answer. It never began. It always was. Isn't that amazing? There never was a time when there wasn't authority structure, headship and submission, because it's part of the Trinity. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. It has always been there in the relationship of the Father and the Son in the Trinity, and I also think also with the Holy Spirit, but especially you see it with the Father and the Son in the Trinity. That's part of the reason that God even uses these terms of Father and Son to show that there was an authority structure there. And yet, an equality of of value and dignity and worth. Let me just read to you here. I thought this was so good. We can learn from this relationship among the members of the Trinity that submission to a rightful authority is a noble virtue. It is a privilege it is something good and desirable. I mean, these things are so counter to what our culture presents. It is something good and desirable. It is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. The virtue demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. Submission. It is His glory the glory of the Son as he relates to his Father. 
In modern society, we tend to think in this way. If you are a person who has authority over another, that's a good thing. If you are someone who has to submit to an authority, that's a bad thing. But that is the world's viewpoint. It is not true. Submission to a rightful authority is a good and noble and wonderful thing because it reflects the interpersonal relationships within God himself. We can say that a relationship of authority and submission between equals with mutual giving of honor is the most fundamental and most glorious interpersonal relationship in the universe. Such a relationship allows interpersonal differences without, quote, better or, quote, worse, without more important or less important. A relationship of submission among equals. That's what you have in the Trinity. And then he closes with this, he says, And when we begin to dislike the very idea of authority and submission, not the distortions and abuses. There's nothing wrong with disliking very much the distortions and abuses. I mean, we need to fight against those with all of our might. But he says, When we begin to dislike the very idea of authority and submission, not the distortions and abuses, but the very idea, we are tampering with something very deep. We are beginning to dislike God himself. It's not even disliking God's way for mankind. You're disliking something more fundamental than that. You're disliking the very nature of God. Well, So far, then, what we've tried to do in these last two times is establish that the Bible teaches that men and women are equal in value and dignity and that men, men and women have different roles in marriage and also in the church as part of the created order. And we've just begun to touch on the third point, this third key issue, the equality and differences between men and women reflect the equality and differences in the Trinity. And we're going to... Go on from there next time, Lord willing. Well, um, I'll stop there.